There is no democracy. It's basically industry is in our government or our government is in industry. And that is a constant case of flux between that revolving door, which is just insane. Welcome to a new mini-series of Climate Radio, looking at climate solutions. In the first two programmes, we'll be focusing on the need to radically reform our democracy so that it operates in the interests of people and planet, rather than the narrow interests of fossil fuel corporations. Next week, I'll be talking to some of the people calling for those changes, an end to corporate lobbying, a new crowdsourced constitution that puts the public interest before profit, proportional representation so that everyone's vote counts, and reforming the funding of political parties so that politicians don't owe favours to tax-evading individuals and corporations. All measures that could be campaigned for under the banner of a great democratic reform act for the 21st century. But we start by looking at the situation as it stands right now, by taking the example of fracking. The way the government is attempting to push fracking through in this country is a stark example of how the system has been corrupted by fossil fuel corporations in a way that is trampling on our democratic processes, our human rights and our ability to tackle climate change. We'll be hearing from some of the people who have been resisting the imposition of fracking on their communities, and from Friends of the Earth campaigner Rose Dickinson, and from the UK's former special envoy on climate change turned dissident John Ashton, about his insider's perspective on what's happening to our democracy. Perhaps the most telling thing from the point of view of this programme is that, despite a cross-party committee concluding that fracking is incompatible with tackling climate change, MPs voted against a moratorium on this form of extreme energy and instead passed a piece of legislation called the Infrastructure Act, which critics say makes it easier for fracking to go ahead. But whatever the law says, fracking developments are being fiercely contested by communities up and down the country. Tina Louise Rothery is a Lancashire resident who describes herself as a reluctant activist who has been amongst those tirelessly campaigning over the last few years to resist the threat of fracking to both her local community and to the country as a whole. Here she outlines the threat that fracking poses to her region. Every time we've read about like Australia, Canada, America, places where fracking's already happen- happening, if you go back to their early days, the rhetoric's almost the same as here, which is, oh, you know, with gold standard regulations, it's not going to be like the last place that did this. You know, each one says, oh, it's perfectly safe provided it's done safely, which is just such a get out clause. Um, but the threats that it's posed are really obvious. If you look at Queensland and Australia, and if you look at, say, Dimmock in America, if you look to Canada, you see that these uh, townships and areas that have had fracking um, have had their water supplies damaged and harmed. There's no denying this. Um, gagging orders in the States make it maybe a little harder to find the information, but it's there. Um, not only the water supplies that have been hampered, mainly by things like one in six wellheads will fail on installation. Um, So it's not just the fracking part of the process that happens deep underground. It's the stuff that happens at the top. You know, it's like 500 vehicle movements per frack. The chances of any of those vehicles having an accident when you're fracking a well up to maybe 13 times and you've got 10 wells or so on a pad, you know, you've really increased your likelihood of human error. Um, 
So there's the risk to groundwater, which is essential for agriculture, can damage, you know, the, the grazing fields of, of a whole herd. It can damage agriculture that's growing. It can then, of course, kill your reputation as a farmer. So when they talk about things like job creation, what they're not talking about is the um, job losses that could occur as a result of any of the accidents happening in a prime agricultural region like Lancashire for instance you know we have grazing herds that create our Lancashire cheese cabbage is a big product here you know we're a really big farming area um, also then you've got to look to things like tourism you know Lancashire has Blackpool and um, we have some really beautiful areas I mean the Boland uh, forest in itself all that area is just lovely and then this attracts a great number of visitors and is a huge contributor to our economy so it's the same way that would you buy a house in this region or would you rather just go somewhere that hasn't got shale gas being extracted? Um, then obviously the house prices are going to be affected. It doesn't take a study to do that. It just takes common sense. You know, where would you choose to live? If there is even the slightest risk, you wouldn't want to choose to live there. Um, the house, one of the sites they're proposing on Preston New Road and the other one in Rosica are within a mile of a school and it's downwind of it. You know, there's, there's methane burn off on these sites. You know, they'll have... Uh, big stacks that are burning off excess methane, that's going into the atmosphere. Uh, you can't see it and smell it, but it's there, and that's going down, uh, downwind to the school. Uh, you also have a population of 190,000 people within a five-mile area. Uh, some medical studies coming out of the States have shown birth defects and abnormalities um, in anyone living within a five-mile region of a, of a gas well. So, you know, there's plenty of things to worry about. Um, I can't see how this ever ended up on the table, and it really is only myth and PR that's kept um, the facts hidden for as long as it has. But then again, you know, they use a PR company uh, and called Hill and & Knowlton in the States and subsidiaries here. But Hill and Knowlton, if you remember, were way back when doctors smoked and encouraged it, uh, were the leaders of that ad campaign. They put it in all the newspapers, your doctor recommends camel, you know. So I think if you've got a really bad product, then you go to Hill and Knowlton. So that tells a story in itself, you know. Campaigners like Tina have seen the corruption of the democratic process at the local level firsthand. Here's Tina again, followed by Balkan residents Charles Metcalf and Catherine McWhorter. Has democracy failed us at a local and national level? Oh, God, yeah, completely. We've got 14 councillors at Lancashire County Council who had to declare an interest. And, you know, admittedly, these interests may have only been small, like the guy who heads up the rugby club, who got sponsorship for his team's uniforms from Quadrilla, and the local Lytham Theatre that had a, um, a refurb courtesy of Quadrilla. And then there are others. You see, what they did was... They needed to do seismic testing. And when they do seismic testing, they may pay for the use of your land. And uh, so if they, they use your land, they give you some financial compensation. And amazingly enough, it just seemed that certain councillors, land was just the appropriate place to go. You know, and, and in all honesty, in seismic testing, they could have gone in any number of fields, but they happened to target councillors. So that, that was the local councillors. We felt they were nobbled, as was much of the local community. The parish council, they did a poll, and they, they did it entirely correctly through the Electoral Reform Society, but it was an unnecessarily complex questionnaire. But the answer came back on, on every single one of those four questions. The majority of people who answered were against the oil and gas industry being here in Balkan. So that was a pretty clear indication of, of the feeling of the village. But the planning committee decided that they would um, 
push it through anyway. The planning committee is Tory dominated and they and the professional planners were trained by industry. They had sessions with industry. They went off to visit a conventional site which had nothing to do with fracking locally. Um, It had had blowouts. It had had serious ecological problems and they were told that there had been no problems there. I mean, we were there watching the planning committee in action and many of those people were just so ignorant all of, of the subject or they were just following party line. And there'd been overwhelming local public objection to, to fracking, but they just ignored that. The residents of Borkham felt so strongly that the planning committee had not made the right decision that they raised the money to take the decision to judicial review. But the residents felt badly served by that process too. A judge originally had declared that we had a case. We had an excellent barrister who's used to pleading on behalf of environmental causes. We had an excellent firm of solicitors behind us. There was every reason why we should win because we could show very clearly that, in our view, West Sussex County Council had no business to accept the competence of the Environment Agency and the Health and Safety Executive. That was one of our major points, that the Council were just blindly accepting that those two government agencies were competent, whereas the Health and Safety Executive, who had the business of of overseeing safe construction of the well, never came down here. They sat on their behinds. They just relied upon an email from Quadrilla at the end of the week to say that they'd done everything according to plan. Now, nobody was monitoring that, nobody, um, except on email. And the Health and Safety Executive never had any meetings with the Environment Agency. They were supposed to work in, in tandem. Well, and the Environment Agency never came here unannounced. They never visited unannounced. So, I mean, who was checking what Quadrilla was doing? And our local council just accepted that those things had been competently handled. The judge, he had just been appointed a judge moments before our trial, and um, he was knighted the second day of our trial, actually. Congratulations to him. Similarly, at national level, the residents of Balcombe and Lancashire feel let down by democracy. At the beginning, we were very much political virgins. I was certainly, I'd never protested against anything in my life, never been on a demo. And, yeah, it's totally turned around my view um, on democracy and totally opened my eyes to the complicity between government and big business and industry. And really, right from parish to national level, we've observed as time has gone on how ignorant politicians are, how little they read and look into subjects like this, how willing they are to follow party line and how corrupt the whole business is. I mean, going beyond Britain as well to the EU, how the British government in league with Poland um, influenced EU regulation on fracking and weakened it and made it easier for the industry. And um, then beyond that, even the transatlantic trade agreements that are currently being negotiated between Europe and America, I mean, have implications for fracking too, as well as a lot of other things. And, oh, well, I just would never have thought about all that stuff at one point. No, we don't feel well served by the process, because I think one of the difficulties is that when you get a government in um, at the beginning of a five-year term, they make certain commitments 
which sometimes they keep to, sometimes they don't. But then after they've been elected, they have five years in which to bring in all sorts of other stuff, and which was nothing to do with the platform on which they were elected. And I feel more keenly than I have ever felt before that this government that we've had for the last five years has been really ramming through legislation for which they did not have a democratic mandate and just trying to push through as much as possible, whether it's building roads, building houses, exploring for unconventional oil and gas, all sorts of things that really were not in their original remit. Um, And there's nothing you can do about it until the next general election. And then you have to galvanise enough of the population to try and get things changed and to get a government of a different complexion in and persuade them to do as they possibly have committed they will do in their pre-electoral campaign. But you never quite know what's going to happen. On a national level, yeah, clearly. There is no democracy there. That's all about you know, the power of the lobbyist and the investment and the revolving door between industry and government. Just take Lord Brown as an example. Uh, He was first put into his role in government by the MP for Balkan, Francis Maud. Francis Maud appointed Lord Brown to his first role in government. Many, many, many years later, when we were in Balkan, Francis Maud then is the MP for for Balkan and Lord Brown is the head of Quadrilla. And so that was a cosy relationship. But between being appointed to government in the first place and now being the head of Quadrilla, Lord Brown passed through the Department of Energy and Climate Change in a role, uh, head of the Royal Society in a role. Department of Energy and Climate Change is now a key regulator. Royal Society put out a very misleading report that was favourable to fracking. And Lord Brown also went and became the head of BP as well. And when the Gulf of Mexico crisis happened, although he was no longer working for them, he was attributed with the blame by many because of his cost-cutting exercises. So most people say he, he cut costs so brilliantly at BP, but in the end, they sacrificed safety. So, and then, then Lord Howell, George Osborne's father-in-law, he's a key lobbyist for the industry. Baroness Hogg, I think, has invested in Riverstone Holdings, which is the financial arm. Uh, there's, you know, there's so many links. that There is no democracy. It's basically industry is in our government or our government is in industry. And that is a constant case of flux between that revolving door, which is just insane. Tina might be inadvertently shuffling some of the dates and detail of Lord Brown's recent CV, but she certainly has the essence right. Of all people, what was Lord Brown, the disgraced former head of BP and now chairman of fracking company Quadrilla, doing, until very recently, so close to the heart of government? The official inquiry into the 2005 Texas oil refinery blowout concluded that Brown's enthusiasm for cost-cutting at BP directly contributed to the disaster, which killed 15 people and injured 180. Brown stood down as CEO of BP two years later, but the culture of cost-cutting that he instituted was not sufficiently rolled back in time to stop the Deepwater Horizon explosion which killed 11 rig workers and poured millions of gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. His appointment to a position in the cabinet that same year gave him the role of appointing business leaders as non-executive directors to each department, including the Department of Energy and Climate Change, where he also had the power 
to hire or fire the permanent secretary. As chair of fracking company Quadrilla, that, at the very least, seems like a significant conflict of interest. In 2012, the UK anti-fracking umbrella group Frackoff revealed how people with a financial interest in fracking had an influence on the government departments concerned with fracking, including the Foreign Office, Cabinet Office, Number 10, Department for Energy and Climate Change, DEFRA and the Treasury. The people involved included Lord Howell and Baroness Hogg, who Tina also mentioned. While the fossil fuel interests stride the corridors of power, protesters, peacefully resisting the imposition of fracking in their community, have faced aggressive assaults on their right to protest. Policing of the camp and the protests here in, in Balkham, it, they lasted two and a bit months and it cost four million pounds and um, that was ultimately, we hear, paid by central government and policing that was violent sometimes and underhand in our view in many respects and police complicit with county council and with quadrilla working together really to deter us from from protest. Greater Manchester Police just used it as training ground on, on how to make the cops more vindictive, I think. It was just horrific, you know. We come away from there after a day of stopping trucks and and you were bruised just just through just trying to walk slowly down a line, you know? It was quite amazing how, how little regard there was for human rights. New research published in the International Journal of Human Rights this month suggests that a range of human rights violations have been carried out as part of the state response to fracking protests, including, quote, the rights of peaceful assembly, freedom of expression, liberty and security of the person, fair trial and a private and family life, end of quote. On the 26th of January, the Cross-Party Environment Audit Committee published a report which concluded that fracking is inconsistent with the UK's obligations under the Climate Change Act, and therefore a moratorium on fracking is needed to avoid both the inconsistency with our climate change obligations and to allow the uncertainty surrounding environmental risks to be fully resolved. That same day, the MPs on the committee put forward an amendment to the Infrastructure Bill to halt fracking. But, in the full knowledge of the committee's finding, the government voted against it and the Labour Party abstained. Well, I think the new Infrastructure Act is a prime example of the complicity between government and the oil and gas industry. Um, it, it just makes everything easier and quicker and cheaper for the industry. Um, it was pushed through in indecent haste and, well, it's, a, it's such a complicated, complex piece of legislation, obscure and long, and within that were all kinds of buried pieces of regulation about fracking that have obviously been inserted in there by the industry. The result is of the infrastructure bill that it removes our right to refuse drilling under our property. It allows for depositing and leaving any substance under our land, and that could include radioactive polluted frac fluid, and it could in include other radioactive substances, for instance, from, from nuclear. And it generally, this new legislation weakens regulation that was already poor in this country, whatever the government says is poor, inappropriate to on onshore fracking and 
it already allowed industry to monitor itself and now that's going to be easier for them. The other thing that I find is particularly galling is that occasionally government says, yes, okay, we will consult you on this piece of legislation. And they they put up a consultation and you get thousands of people answering this consultation. A very good example of this was the recently passed infrastructure bill where a lot of people were asked what they thought about this idea of doing away with the concept of trespass under someone's home. And the vast majority of answers were very clear that they did not want this to happen. So the government had this consultation, they had those answered, and they completely ignored those answers, which seemed to me just a perversion of of what they said they were doing. They said they would consult, they consulted, and then they ignored the results of the consultation. I cannot see how you can think of that as being engagement with the people who vote for you. I think that the idea of having local democracy and giving um, local government powers to make decisions about planning, whatever it is that they're planning, whether it's oil and gas planning applications or new houses or new roads or whatever, and then saying, as they said in the infrastructure bill, that if the Secretary of State deemed that the decision made at a local level was the wrong decision, he, or I suppose she at the moment, it happens to be a he, would just overturn it. I mean, that seems to me a corruption of democracy in that you are suggesting that local democracy has some sort of power. And then at a central level, you're saying, oh, sorry, guys, you don't have it after all. We're ignoring you. Bearing in mind that Labour abstained in the vote for a moratorium on fracking, is Labour any better than the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats when it comes to fracking? Both of the major parties are for fracking. We simply want to ban and there is no major party that is asking for that. Are Labour any better than the Tories? No, absolutely not. They issued the licences in the first place under the last government. So they clearly didn't examine it as as closely as they should have done. Uh, So no, I don't believe Labour to be any different at all. I actually tried to contact... um, Caroline Flint and Tom Gretorex many, many, many times um, over the past year trying to get a meeting between um, anti-fracking groups and um, never had any reply, although I know from insiders that they have received those emails and that they've discussed them. Um, It's very hard to be heard, even though less than a quarter of the the UK population supports fracking, even though there's a huge movement against it, it's very difficult to get politicians of any party to listen. All sorts of different environmental organisations have been trying to engage with Labour and with individual Labour MPs um, to try to persuade them that that fracking is not the way to go. Um, and, And they've had, it seems to me, pretty limited success. When the infrastructure bill was being debated at quite a late stage in the day, um, various Labour politicians came up with a list of 13 safeguards, which they claimed would make fracking acceptable and would eliminate the risks. Now, I have a good friend who works in the oil and gas industry who knows much more about it than I do. And he said, frankly, these 13 safeguards 
are not really worth the paper they're written on. They don't take legislation forward much from where it is at the moment. They don't really um, provide for independent monitoring of what oil and gas companies do. But it was it was a gesture. And for a moment, we thought, well, perhaps Labour is coming round to our point of our way of thinking. But then it went back to the Lords. These were changed when it got back to the Lords. Um, it then came back to the Commons. And there was an opportunity for the House of Commons to kick out the changes that the Lords had made, which had um, emasculated these 13 so-called safeguards even further. But they didn't do that. And um, there were a lot of Labour MPs who did not vote. Um, and that, I thought, demonstrated that actually, when push came to shove, Labour Labour's heart was not really in the anti-fracking um, position. For the record, Climate Radio approached Joan Wally the Labour Chair of the Environment Audit Committee, and she has appeared on this programme in the past, but she did not reply to a request to speak sent to her twice about her committee's finding on fracking and the Labour Party's position. So instead, I spoke to Rose Dickinson, a campaigner at Friends of the Earth, and asked, if fracking is incompatible with tackling climate change, then why did MPs not vote for the moratorium that was recommended by the Environment Audit Committee? We know that fracking is completely incompatible with tackling climate change. Only one-fifth of proven global reserves of fossil fuels can be burnt if we are to avoid dangerous climate change. And investing in a new fossil fuel industry and adding to the stockpile of unburnable carbon is completely incompatible with tackling climate change. And what is clear is that um, rather than invest in a new fossil fuel industry, we need to see a massive increase in investment in renewable energy and energy efficiency the Committee on Climate Change's last progress report highlighted that on the current trajectory, progress on meeting carbon budgets will not be met, and they recommended an increase in energy efficiency and investment in low-carbon technologies. But what we did see um, during the infrastructure bill debate was a breaking up of the political support for fracking. MPs did have a chance to vote for the moratorium, and over 50 MPs voted in favour. And that included MPs from across the political parties, including um, Labour, Conservatives, Lib Dems, Plaid Cymru, SNP and the Greens. Unfortunately, the Labour Party did abstain and government also voted against the moratorium and that included the majority of Lib Dems and Conservative MPs, which means it didn't go through. But the fact that a significant number of MPs voted in favour of a moratorium and the fact that, that we now have seen that there are moratoriums in place in Wales and Scotland does show that the political consensus that fracking should go ahead is simply being broken down. Politicians really are now being forced to listen to the growing number of people that simply don't want fracking. So are Labour any better than the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats when it comes to fracking? There has been broad political consensus until recently that, that fracking is broadly OK, perhaps with some um, tweaking to regulations which just aren't good enough. But what we saw during the passage of the infrastructure bill is that the Labour Party did strengthen the conditions that they would want um, enforced before fracking could go ahead. And they said there should be no fracking until those conditions are enforced. And importantly, those conditions did include a ban on fracking near drinking water protection zones government accepted the 13 conditions while there was a lot of media attention during report stage of the infrastructure bill. But then when the bill went back to the House of Lords the next week, when the media were paying less attention, government just 
watered down their commitment to all of those conditions and didn't ban fracking near drinking water. So that was a complete U-turn from government. So what we think should happen now is that the Labour Party needs to clarify their position and call for an immediate moratorium on fracking following their sister parties in Scotland and Wales that have done the same thing because it's completely incompatible with tackling climate change and it has huge risks for public health. Catherine McWhorter from Balcombe said that the Infrastructure Act was rushed through in indecent haste. To what extent was there adequate time to discuss the issues around fracking in the final debate in the House of Commons? Completely not enough time at all. Um, There were about 60 MPs wanting to talk at one stage with only about half an hour left to do so. Um, And to the extent to which there wasn't enough time is shown by the fact that Caroline Lucas didn't even get enough time to push her amendment to a vote that would remove the um, trespass uh, law change, which was opposed by 99% of consultation respondents. On the day of the vote in the House of Commons, The Guardian published a letter written by Chancellor George Osborne to his cabinet colleagues that had been leaked to Friends of the Earth. What was the significance of this letter? So the Osborne letter really just goes to show the extent to which government is working hand in glove with the fracking industry and trying to do everything possible to make fracking happen, whatever the wishes of local communities. And the content of the letter also throws into question David Cameron's promise that local councils and communities should be free to decide if they want fracking or don't want fracking. By, for for example, in the letter, um, planning to work with Quadrilla to overturn um, any rejection of their planning applications. The letter reveals how Osborne's planning a series of interventions to directly respond to Quadrilla's asks, which include measures to sidestep democracy, um, undermine local representatives by um, helping fracking companies to overturn the applications and carrying out the fracking industry's PR for them by spending cash on a communications plan on fracking. And really for communities fighting fracking, this is just further evidence that government are first and foremost concerned with keeping the industry happy and we think that rather than push ahead with fracking no matter what the government should instead follow the lead of countries and states around the world by calling for a halt on fracking immediately. Scotland and Wales have done just that by calling for a moratorium and in New York State they also banned fracking due to the significant health risks. So the bottom line is that fracking is high risk and isn't the answer to our energy problems. It won't help us tackle climate change and it just brings big risks to health and the local environment. That was Rose Dickinson part of the team campaigning against fracking at Friends of the Earth England and Wales. If the government isn't listening, then Britain's leading climate change ambassador for six years between 2006 and 2012 is. Career diplomat John Ashton shared with Climate Radio his concerns over the damage that is being done to our democracy by the push for fracking in general and the provisions of the Infrastructure Act in particular. In an extended interview, the first question I asked John was if there were particular examples he could point to of the ways in which fossil fuel corporations have corrupted the policy-making process around fracking. I mean, my background is climate change and, and climate diplomacy, and I came into the fracking debate from that point of view. It seemed to me that fracking is a pretty dumb thing to do if you're trying to deal with climate change. Why lock in a whole new set of infrastructure and carbon intensive supply chains but quickly I found actually that it was the politics and the political significance in the wider British context that was for me more telling more salient because fracking and the debate about fracking illustrates a much wider problem which is that for most people in our country politics feels like something which is done 
to them rather than something done with them. And if politics doesn't feel like something that done with you, particularly at a time of change and turbulence and uncertainty and anxiety like, like the times we have now, then politics doesn't work. Somehow people have to have the feeling that politics is working in pursuit of the common good. And in the case of fracking, that's certainly not true. So what you see is up and down the country, communities that start to sense that, as it were, fracking is coming to a cinema near them, will self-organize and people from all walks of life in that community people who often for decades you know haven't really had a serious conversation with each other people who speak different languages have different interests different ways of life will start getting together in somebody's sitting room over cups of coffee and join a conversation which says well what is what does this mean for us and what do we want to do about it and then the more they get their head around what fracking actually will involve and the the high level of intrusiveness and disruptiveness and and risk, let alone the sort of wider questions about, about climate change, the more the closely they look at it, the more they come to a, a very sort of strong shared view that they actually that they don't think it's going to be in the interest of their community. And that's what's, dri- what's, what's driven the wave of, which is still at an early stage, because fracking is at an early stage in Britain, the wave of antipathy towards fracking from the communities where it may present itself. And this is very diverse and disparate. You know, the cultural context and the social context differs widely um, according to whether you're, you know, you're in the Fylde in, in Lancashire or on the edge of the Sussex Downs or, you know, wherever. But the response is the same. And another very powerful thing about that you don't pick this up from a lot of the mainstream media coverage. Mainstream media coverage likes to have pictures of demonstrators being sort of hauled away by the by the police. But it's not telling the story of what's really going on and the way in which people in those communities are devoting time and huge amounts of personal commitment. And the more they get involved, the more they are willing to devote. Uh, and, and what you get beyond a certain point, that becomes a kind of what you might call a political awakening. They start to get a sense that although up to now they have tolerated this thing about politics being done to them, when the stakes are really high, they're saying, well, actually, it doesn't have to be like that. And we can find our voice as well and we can make our voice strongly heard. And then you, and a lot of the people involved are people with great deal of of experience and expertise people from different professional backgrounds and they so they start to pool their their resources their their access to advice legal advice um corporate law advice all the different kinds of advice you need if you're mm-hmm. and you get a sense as i say of awakening and it's and it's very powerful um to relate that back to your question i think the other thing you get is a sense that their interests are being taken for granted by those who, who those who see an interest in coming in and doing the fracking so they see the the sharp end you know that the the tactics being adopted by some of the if you like the corporate champions of fracking which are not on the whole they're not large corporate behemoths you know it's not the sort of bps and the shells of this world companies like quadrilla and igas and celtic energy are actually quite small sort of boutique 
companies which have been set up for the express purpose. I mean, if you then look at who's on their boards and then trace the sort of incestuous relationships, you see that they're connected to a much wider and more complex um, corporate ecosystem. But they see these people coming in and, as it were, trying to ride roughshod over their interests, trying to organise local debates in a way that will make it easier for those who welcome fracking to be heard than for those who oppose fracking to be heard, just in terms of who gets invited to meetings and who gets advanced notice of meetings, because it's quite hard to drop everything and come to a meeting that is going to happen in two hours or whatever. Who gets what would you might call it blandishments you know who 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 gets offered incentives to adopt a more favorable position um and you see it just go to any of these any of the communities and and they'll tell you again be different stories because the local reality on the ground is different but what they feel is an attempt to uh, either to buy them off or to bully them off in league sometimes with local business interests and local politicians and other kinds of local institutions. And you can call that corruption or you can call it attempts to manipulate. I don't mind too much what language you use, but but it's an attempt to make sure that the playing field isn't level. That, that's what it feels like. But actually, it, in all of the places where I've seen it, it greatly underestimates the determination and the cultural cross-disciplinarity of the forces on the other side. Often it's counterproductive because it just acts as a further stimulus to the forces on the other side of the debate to get their act together even more effectively. Just to give you a a couple of um, sort of practical anecdotal uh, examples, um, I've I, I can't sort of tell you exactly which uh, schools are concerned, but I've certainly heard accounts of how um, uh, companies that want to come and do fracking in a particular area um, have been uh, giving or at least offering money to schools to buy sports kit and laboratory equipment and things like that. Um, and that seems to me a corruption of um, local public life particularly at a time when um, the budgets of all public institutions are under such, under such pressure. Um, they're trying to buy um, a certain kind of profile, a certain kind of reputation, um, in a way which is um, uh, designed to achieve the outcome which is in their interest, whatever the view of the community. Um, and then more broadly, and this has been sort of widely publicized, they, there are various incentives that have been talked about, both both offered by government and offered by um, individual companies to local authorities, um, if they will, as it were, open the door to fracking. Um, and that's, it seems to me, that's, again, um, something to be very concerned about at a time when local authorities budgets are being decimated by um, uh, the, the austerity that we've already had and, and threat, uh, are under threat of being decimated further by the next stage of austerity. It's almost as if local authorities are being asked to take planning decisions on fracking with a gun to their heads because they may get a bit of budgetary relief uh, if they say yes. If they say no... Um, or if they say yes and their decision is then overturned at the centre, they risk being saddled with legal costs 
um, which they can ill afford to pay. So this removes both the, the sort of reality and the appearance of a level playing field. It's terribly important if if you, if we go down uh, a, a road which is as controversial as contested as this, that at least the playing field appears level, because wherever we get to in the end will still be contested much more strongly if people can say actually this was rigged in the first place. Okay, you also had uh, particular concerns about the anti-democratic nature of some of the clauses of the infrastructure bill. Well, that's right. I think if you sort of add it all together, it tells a very sorry story about the the health of our democratic institutions and processes. And just to give a few examples, if I may, and the, the, some, some to do with the content of the bill, some to do with the process by which it was arrived at. So the infrastructure bill is a very complicated bill. It's not just a, the, the most visible aspect of it was the provision to weaken the laws of trespass in relation to um, people who want to do fracking under your uh, under your land or under your home, uh, so you can't you can't stop them uh, using the the laws of trespass. But actually, that was just one of many many provisions of the infrastructure bill, which has all kinds of uh, and now the infrastructure act, which has all kinds of implications for, if you like, the balance of power between those forces that represent private interests, those forces that represent public interests, and in, indeed the citizen's interest in relation to how land is used and what happens on or underneath land. All of that has been done in a way that has written into it a requirement to maximise growth. Well, growth, particularly in times like this, is a very, what's the word, tendentious concept. And one of the things that you notice, if you look at the way government pursues its desire to maximise growth, is that you often see a certain sort of um, elision, if I can call it that, an artificial conjuncture between what might be in the interests of growth in the UK economy as a whole, if you like, the, the real macroeconomic growth factor, and the claims that particular companies make about whether approving this project or that project, not just in relation to fracking, but in relation to development more generally, and sort of a, a sort of assumption that if 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 it looks as if this company might, you know, benefit um, in a particular way, might be able to contribute some new jobs, for example, that that must by definition be good for the interest of growth of the economy. Well, let me take a particular example of fracking in Lancashire. Um, In Lancashire, the two main sources of employment are agriculture and tourism. Uh, And most of Lancashire is rural. Most of Lancashire is heavily engaged in producing often very high quality food, And it's also a very important destination for tourism because it's an absolutely beautiful county. Now, if you had a fracking industry in Lancashire, that would be very disruptive and very visible. And you could quite easily imagine that um, one of the consequences of that visibility and that disruption might be that it would give Lancashire a reputation, a profile, which would be less attractive to tourists. You might also imagine that fears of contamination, uh, for example, of local water supply, whether or not they're well-founded. That's the point. It doesn't matter whether they're well-founded or not. 
because when you're trying to sell high quality food it's the perception that matters so you, you've got here now a much more complex situation where what might be good for jobs in terms of the fracking companies but by the way most of the jobs concerned um, will be fairly temporary and a lot of them will be for people from outside the county not necessarily good good quality lasting jobs for for the communities themselves uh, on one side of the balance sheet and a possible cost in terms of jobs lost in agriculture and tourism on the other and if one is looking at the overall condition of the economy one has to be honest about considering that whole picture not just the possible benefits brought by fracking uh, companies and very little of the debate it seems to me is presented in terms of the whole um, the whole picture not all of that is easy to quantify by the way it's a complex picture that's why um, I imagine it's why I see that recently the um, National Farmers Union has become quite skeptical about the benefits of fracking in the countryside where where farming is the major industry and I can well understand why because if I belong to the National Farmers Union I would be certainly concerned um, about those kind of consequences. Drill down a little bit more and look at a more specific piece of the infrastructure bill the requirement to I think I'm quoting maximize economic recovery of oil and gas um, whether it's conventional or produced by high volume uh, fracking that's a very interesting phrase what does maximizing economic recovery actually mean what constitutes maximization what constitutes economic those are contested and contestable concepts and because they're contested and contestable the question of who gets to decide is a very important one and for example in government if central government is called upon to take a decision that relates to the maximization of, re of economic recovery in a certain place, whose voices does it listen to? Does it listen to what the companies tell them about what they would like to get out of the ground? Or does it also listen to what public interest bodies say and what, what citizens' organizations say and how much weight does it... A, a phrase like that, in a sense, if you if you nail it down in legislation is really saying that in those kinds of decision you should give more weight to what the companies say because they are the arbiters of, if you like of what's economic for them what the business case is and that seems to me quite again insidious and leads you to disempowering disenfranchising some very important voices that might actually have something to contribute to a sense of what is in the economic good of the community um, as a whole. Um, those are two sort of content examples. Let me give one or two process examples. It was clear all along that if you're going to water down the law of trespass, this is, this is a law with very deep cultural, historical roots in our society, and any tinkering with it is going to be contested and controversial. And it's not unusual when a proposal is on, a legislative proposal is on the table, government will say, well, because this is obviously going to be controversial, we'll have a consultation. We will invite comments uh, from the public. So there was duly a consultation exercise in which the public was invited to comment on whether it welcomed or opposed mm. that particular provision of what became the Infrastructure Act. And lo and behold, um, I think I'm right in saying something like 99% of the responses 
were critical and essentially said, um, we do not want to have this weakening down of the law of trespass. Now, you would have thought that if government was going to embark on a consultation exercise, it would do so with sincerity and integrity. And if you had such an overwhelming response on a particular point, government would feel obliged to reflect that in in reframing the legislation. In this case, the exact opposite happened. And I've seen, I can't remember who, who, whose name it came out under, but I've seen a, an explanation from officials about why it wasn't intended to pay any real attention to that very high degree of opposition, essentially unanimous opposition to that particular clause. So the outcome was a legislative will on the part of the coalition government that was determined to ride roughshod over that opposition. And actually, there was something that, that, as it were, rubbed salt into that wound. Because after the consultation exercise had closed, the government, and very, within hours of the one of the key debates inside the relevant select committees beginning, the government announced not only was it going to ride roughshod over the objection to tinkering with the law of trespass, it was also going to introduce a new provision into the draft legislation that said that if um, the companies that had been maximising their economic recovery of oil and gas from under your land, if they were so minded, they could, without again asking permission or any other new impediment, they could pump down into the place where the oil and the gas had come from, whatever they liked. It was a very loosely drawn additional provision which essentially allows companies to dump whatever they like under your land. Uh, And it wasn't actually clear where that had come from or what the purpose was, although it was widely suspected and plausibly suspected and the government never uh, countered the suspicion um, that actually this was something that they'd had it in mind to do all along. So why on earth keep that up their sleeves until the very last moment. It sort of suggests um, that they were really trying to slip it through, as it were, under the radar. That's very bad for confidence in our democratic systems. That That's a very anti-democratic way to behave. It's ironic that the Minister of State who announced that intention was Baroness Kramer, who's a Liberal Democrat, because it seems to me that behaving in that way is neither liberal nor democratic, and it's certainly not consistent with the values that her particular party claims to reflect. Um, So that was an example of a distortion of, more than distortion, a contempt for democracy in the process by which this uh, legislation was was pushed through. We heard from the Environmental Audit Committee that they had reached the conclusion that developing fracking is incompatible with tackling climate change. The infrastructure bill, how was it allowed to go ahead if that was the case? Uh, that's probably a very complicated question to un- unpack, but I mean, why is the climate change signal generally yeah. not coming through in government policy? Um, there's a kind of widespread perception that government ought to behave in a kind of coherent way, as if it had a sort of single brain. And indeed, that would be a wonderful thing if it did. But in reality, um, government often behaves more like a group of starving ferrets tied up in a sack. Um, Different bits of government pursue different objectives. And it's often easier for government to pursue contradictory objectives at once than to try and reconcile them. Um, And I think in the case of fracking, I mean, I just think it's plain as a pike staff, actually. I mean, either you can be in favour of 
an effective response to climate change, or you can be in favour of fracking on an industrial scale, you just can't be in favour of both at the same time. Fracking on industrial scale locks us further into a carbon-intensive energy system, not just in terms of the the carbon emissions that will come every year, every month, every day, but but the way you embed that in infrastructure, in sunk investment, and you create new political interests, new constituencies of interest who are going to say, actually, now we've created this, we have to keep on doing it. Because otherwise, you know, it will be bad for jobs, bad for growth, bad for competitiveness. Um, why would you do that if it's obvious that what we need to do in response to climate change is to build a... Um, a carbon neutral energy system with a massive push on renewable energy and a massive push on energy efficiency. You know, it, it, you can't move in two opposite directions at once. But I think at the moment, if you look at the behaviour of the coalition government, what you see is very much a desire to move in two opposite directions at once. And actually, you know, increasingly, as, as it became clear that the initial attempt to be the greenest government ever had fallen by the wayside, that the the photogenic huskies with which the Prime Minister was photographed are now sort of long dead, and that all of that stuff is a broken promise and a pile of um, green crap, as the Prime Minister is alleged to have said. Not only are they pursuing contradictory objectives, but the, if you like, the sort of lock ourselves further into the high-carbon status quo, that's become a stronger and stronger force and, and actually a dominant force. I mean, is it simplistic then to say that corporations have just become too close to government and that the political elite have become too distanced from a wider constituency which which they are supposed to represent? I think it is simplistic, actually. Um, I think it's very dangerous to overgeneralise. When, when, one, when one talks of corporations, who does one actually mean? Because business is a very complex ecosystem. There are all kinds of companies with all kinds of purposes and objectives and making all kinds of footprints on the economy. So I think one has to be capable of, of differentiating between them. Uh, I do, however, think that if one is looking at a situation that requires a high degree of change, get, you know, getting from a high carbon economy to a, a low carbon economy with a carbon neutral energy system, that will be a transformational process at the rate that we need it to happen. And what you will always get in that situation, uh, if you like, is a struggle between the interests of incumbency, the interests of the status quo, and the interests that those who are actually trying to bring that transformation about. And as an additional complicating factor, what you will often get is people who actually are status quo forces, people who, who don't want transformation, who will pretend that they do but they will just whisper at the last moment, just not too fast, not too much, or not involving us. Mm. And incumbency forces usually start off with an advantage because they're the incumbents. They know how the current system works uh, and they know how to manipulate the political process in their favour. And I think you can see incumbency forces at work in, in, in politics and government at the moment. I think you do see, if you like, a sort of unhealthy proximity between the decision-making processes of the, the, the sort of incumbency forces in the private sector and, if you like, the poachers and the gamekeepers in the public sector. There's a high degree of familiarity. Let's catch that again. The UK's former leading climate change diplomat says there's an unhealthy proximity 
between the decision-making forces of the incumbency in the private sector, if you like the poachers, and the gamekeepers in the public sector. There's a high degree of familiarity. In other words, government officials who are supposed to be regulating in the public interest in fact have an unhealthily close and familiar relationship with the fossil fuel corporations they are supposed to be regulating. In 2013, the World Development Movement, which has since renamed itself Global Justice Now, put it another way. They published research which showed that one-third of ministers in the UK government have links to the fossil fuel companies and banks which drive climate change. This programme has looked at fracking as a case study, but a similar situation could be found in other areas of government policy related to energy and climate change. As the Global Justice Now Web of Power report put it, quote, This energy finance complex at the heart of government is allowing fossil fuel companies to push the planet to the brink of climate catastrophe, risking millions of lives, especially in the world's poorest countries. If we are to move away from a high-carbon economy, the government must break this nexus and regulate the finance sector's involvement in fossil fuel energy. End of quote. Climate Radio will be back next week to explore the new campaigns that are emerging that aim to tackle this corruption of our democracy by vested interests head-on. Campaigns that are aiming to rebalance the forces in our democracy so that the public interest comes before narrow private interests. We hope you will join us then. My name's Phil England. Thanks for listening. The fact that in the beginning people just swallowed it hook, line and sinker and didn't know to question it because it was being sold as jobs for the country, you know, um, energy security and, and all, you know, and, and just a great thing for us. And people immediately were just okay with that. You know, no one really thought to question it. And then now I think there's not a single person you can speak to who won't say, oh, well, I'm not sure. You know, that was the whole point, was especially for the vast majority of people who aren't activists and didn't look into it closely then at least they're questioning it now. So I think, yeah, definitely winning, definitely winning. It's still surprising to me how hard it is to wake some people up, but certainly here in Baltimore we've awakened, and I think all over the country, as people realise that their area has been sold as a fracking block to industry, you know, people, when they realise it's on their doorstep, will wake up and start reading and we'll get into action. This is quite a big movement. I mean, thousands and thousands across the country. The industry and government is, is worried about it. It's, it's a sign when they start trying to undermine us that they're worried. We're a big movement. And people power is what's going to get us out of this. Yeah, um, and because we don't have a moratorium yet in the UK, it's vital that we, we keep up the pressure to make sure that all parties immediately commit to introducing a fracking moratorium. First and foremost, um, people in Lancashire are on the front line for fracking at the moment, and we urge people to sign the, the Lancashire petition that they'll find that everyone can find on our website. And we're also um, asking people to um, march with us on March the 7th, which is the big climate change march, uh, to say no to fracking and to call to action on climate change. Um, the more noise you make, uh, the more difficult it is.
positions uh, for politicians to ignore us and I think the events of the last few months um, really go to show that that is true.